Hello everyone and welcome to That Time When, the comedy history podcast where we tell you about strange things that happened in history. I'm Amelia Edwards and here with me today is my colleague, Barnaby King. Hello. Hello. And how are you today? Uh, <laughs> we were celebrating Amelia's birthday yesterday. We were. <laughs> and we celebrated good and well. Yes, so we're both a little worse for wear. Yep, I think that means we're in the perfect mood to talk about communism. Hooray! Is this going to be more cultural revolution stuff? No, there's no cultural oh, revolution. Gods, I don't think I could stand that right now. <laughs> this is super positive. Yay. So last episode, and if you haven't listened to last episode, go check it out because I think it was pretty good. Yep, and we're going to spoil it now by saying you ended by saying that there were spies. I ended by saying that the original founder of table tennis mm-hmm. was a communist and a spy. I'm a going spy. to. I'm going to now um, add in a word to that. Probably a spy. Oh, okay. But probably a spy is still quite fun, yeah. especially when we're talking about early communism days. When you know it's not terrifying, scary communism. Mm. It's important for the people. Communism. Yeah. You know. <laughs> Before you get into that sort of like Tinker Tailor Soldier spy. Uh, yeah, sort of Cold War situation where the espionage is really quite horrifying. Yeah, we're not into horrifying espionage. <laughs> we are into champagne socialism in a big way. Excellent. So this is going to be the story of Ivan Montague. Okay. And I'm going to tell you a lot about his life because it is fascinating. All it right. may drag on a bit. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> Don't say that. Okay. People are going to turn off. It may last a really long time. Okay. Um, we may have to cut some of it. <laughs> Hey, because, you leave that up to me. You know I barely cut anything. I can't possibly make us do three episodes on table tennis. That would be insane. Mm, fair enough. Mm-hmm. So this is Ivan Montague. Uh, he was born in 1904. Mm-hmm. And he was the son of Louis Montague, the second Baron Swathling, and Gladys, Baroness Swathling. Where's Swathling? I don't really know where Swathling is, ah. and I don't think they're actually connected with Swathling. Right. So the first Baron Swathling, I think, was a recent Jewish immigrant to England during right. the Victorian period, and had managed to make a fair amount of money and get in with um, like high up people, and yeah. had been given his baronetcy oh, okay. uh, through that. So I have got no idea where Swathling is, but they just got given the title Swathling. Right. Is it probably like it's a tiny little village somewhere, but you, you need to be a baron of somewhere. You have to be a baron of somewhere. Yeah. And Louis Montague was the second baron Swathling. Right. Um, <laughs> Swathling. Yeah. <laughs> there are two houses and one goat. No humans. Probably. Probably. It was probably like an absolute rotten borough. I have yeah. no idea. Anyway, uh, Baroness Swathling, by the way, was friends with the Princess of Wales. Oh, okay. uh, Later the Queen. Um, So they were... Lady Di. No, not that one. (laughs) (laughs) So they were like really high up. Yeah. And super wealthy. So also, Ivan Montague was really precocious. Okay. A lot of this is going to be about his childhood because a lot of things happened in his childhood, to be honest. Mm. So by the time he was six... He had decided that he was no—he was not really good at sport. Right. So this is a Victorian wealthy family. What you're supposed to do is make your money in the city and then mm-hmm. go out into the countryside and play loads of sports. Yeah. And <laughs> you need to do some roller skating. Yeah, basically. <laughs> and 
Ivan Montague, bless him, had two other brothers who were really good at sports. Right. And he was not good at sports. Ah. Uh, so it, it, it's that, um, I think it's quite a classic of literature, really, this idea of like the younger brother who's, you know, a bit of a disappointment because he's not quite like his older brothers who are a bit more, you know, gruff and physical and yeah. everything like that. Is he intellectual? Yes, very. There we go. He's very intellectual. Um, but and he... he's a disgrace <laughs> to his father. Well, he becomes a disgrace to his father later on, oh. although his father seems to have been mostly encouraging where possible. Oh, like, okay. Well, that, that's not how the story should go. Yeah, I know. Swaveling seems to have been <laughs> okay, to be honest. Yeah. Um, so when he was about six years old, he was like, okay, I'm not very physical, but I do want to play sports. Okay. So father... Please, could you buy us a ping pong table? And his father said, No, get out back and rake that muck. <laughs> no, his father was like, Absolutely, I will get you a ping pong table, oh six year old son. So you um, can run through it and practice your rugby. Now, the thing about this was that ping pong had kind of officially died in 1904, the same year he was oh, born. Okay. Um, so ping pong was a game that was quite popular during the peak of the British Empire years. Right. Apparently it was invented by the British Army. Right, Although okay. no one seems to know where. Yeah. Um, so it could have been invented in India or Malaysia or Asia Minor. I guess in a way it's a pretty like convenient sport if you have to move around. You just yeah. need like a flat surface, the ball and a couple of paddles. Yeah, and like originally the paddles are supposed to have been made out of like cigar boxes yeah. and the ball was like made out of a champagne cork because you know that oh British God. army having a fab time. <laughs> Again, that might be a myth. Yeah, I'm, I'm just thinking a champagne cork, that's not going to fly very well. I well, don't know, I could see it working. I, I th but the thing is like, so I could see it if it was something like badminton. Yeah. But ping pong, you bounce that ball a lot. That's true. So unless it's, I mean, it could very well be that the rules were different. Well. Because um, obviously these yeah. things adapt. But... There were no official rules yeah. at the time. And apparently it was one of those games which was like, people did a lot of jokes about it because there was a whole thing about like, oh, it's great because, you know, the ball might go flying off under a sofa and then a young lady might have to reach down and oh get it. So, you know, ankles, bums, that kind of thing. Damn it, horny soldiers. Well, horny soldiers <laughs> are going to be horny. Yeah. If they're going to be like slightly rude about ping pong, I guess that's like mm. the least of our worries. Why do I just feel like that image is something that's going to appear on a dirty Victorian postcard? Oh my gosh, it totally would. Right? With a bustle, I think. Yes, yes. absolutely. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, okay, so um, by the time that Ivan Montague was 13 years old, mm -hmm. he had decided to become a socialist. Oh, okay. Um, he had read George Bernard Shaw's Socialism for Millionaires. Right. Which was just aimed at him. <laughs> George Bernard Shaw wrote it for him specifically. Yeah. Um, he had read this uh, pamphlet yeah. and was like, I really think that socialism is the only way to go. Hmm. And this was his belief all through the rest of his life. Fair so, enough. age 13, when he was attending Westminster School, and at this time, the uniform was like an Eton suit and a top hat. Oh, wow. For Westminster. That's just what Jacob Rees-Mogg wears now. Yeah, but the thing is that um, our Ivor is like, no. Hmm. Um, he used to stop off on the way out of school at uh, St. James's Park yeah. and go to the left luggage office 
where he kept a permanent locker and he'd swap out his top hat so that he could have a cloth cap and, Amazing. Um, and a light coat so he could fit in with the <laughs> proletariat. Although in a bit of a Jacob Rees-Mogg way, he did have like a silver topped cane that he used to walk around with while he had his cloth cap. Right. To be fair, at one point as a child in, and at the age of 13, apparently, according to him, he did use it to hit a police officer he saw beating someone up. Right. Okay. So, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's, it's a handy tool. It's a handy tool. You can use it to beat up police officers who are abusing their power. You can use it as a little wedge to sort of like prop up uh, fallen cartwheels. Yeah. Um, you can... What else can you do? You can use it... I'm, I'm just thinking of a lot of levers and fulcrums right now. I mean, pretty much. You can use it to poke people. You can yeah. use it to poke the buttocks of girls who are trying to retrieve um, ping pong balls from yes. underneath the tables. Or, or raise the bustle further. I'm not sure he'd do that. He no. seems like a stand-up guy, to be yeah. honest, either. Um, okay, so this, by the way, when he was 13, that was 1917, so the year of the revolution. Ah, right, yeah. So he is on brand. He's like, let's do this. Yeah. It's time for the revolution. And also it means that communism is entirely theoretical at this point. Right. Um, now, he was also really, really intelligent, Kind of annoyingly so. So mm. at 15, he took the entrance exam for Cambridge and he passed it. Um, so I hate him. <laughs> father, I'm going to Cambridge. Son, you're going to Cambridge? Yes, I am, father. I have finally finished watching this episode of Barney the Dinosaur and now I'm off to university. <laughs> yeah, basically, he's a precocious little shit. Yeah. Um, although actually, King's College asked him to wait until he was 17 to start. <laughs> so he just had two years to fill. Oh my God. I know. And being like super wealthy, he got to fill it in all of these amazing ways. So his parents knew, for example, the head of London Zoo. So he got to spend time there at night listening to the wolves growl so at cool. the lions and the lions roar at the wolves. I want that. I know. That sounds like great fun. Super cool. Didn't they actually do something like that for a while at London Zoo where you could like stay in little chalets there? I think you might still be able to do uh, sleep-ins. A lot of the London museums and things do those. Hmm. They're well worth looking into. Um, so during this time, obviously, mm -hmm. as well as doing wild stuff, including British Museum type stuff and yep. all of the things that you would want to do as an intellectual in London with all the money and influence that you can get. Yeah. Um, he also joined a few political parties. So he used to canvass his father's tenants in the countryside on behalf of the Labour Party. Oh, right. And he also, at one point, hid a consignment of Lenin's booklet, State and Revolution, from the police. Oh, damn. Um, because the socialists needed to hide it somewhere. And he was like, hey, bring it over to my house. Uh, he wasn't very good at hiding stuff, so he just left it in the hallway next to the ping pong table. All right. I was about to make a joke about Christoph Waltz turning up and asking if he had any, uh, like, communist literature. Well, the thing but... is that he was well aware that as a millionaire and, like, the son of a baron, mm. he was going to be in a really privileged position his whole life. Yeah, that makes so sense. So he would literally have been like, yes, I have got socialist propaganda. It's yeah. over there. <laughs> what you going to do about it, copper? I own your ass. Exactly. <laughs> I mean, that's one way to use your privilege. Yeah, exactly. I think it's quite funny. Okay, so when he finally got to Cambridge, mm -hmm. um, he obviously joined some communist groups. But he was, uh, unfortunately, he had to put that on hold because he was going through puberty. <laughs> 
<laughs> he was 17 at this point. <laughs> I, I we're, know. we're up to a normal thing. But now he just gets even more precocious despite being 17. Right. Because... He also founded a ping pong society mm-hmm. and he used, this is the best bit, he used some of his allowance right. to have two ping pong tables made to order. Oh, nice. Because he's that wealthy. He's yeah. like, oh, you know, I'll just buy some with my pocket money. It'll be fine. <laughs> um, and when he first set up a tournament, 140 players registered. Oh, damn. In Cambridge. It's not that big a university. <laughs> no, and they're going to need more than two ping pong tables. My God, yes. <laughs> That's going to take forever. Uh-huh. So he goes, hey, I'm really onto a good thing here. Mm. And so he immediately set up a team to challenge Oxford University. And as a result of this, by the time he was 18 years old, he was chairman of the National Ping Pong Association oh because he God. was the first person to create a, a codified yeah. table tennis. He was the one who created the rules, basically. I love this idea that, okay, so this guy is basically the founder of ping pong. Yeah. So he sets up his society, codifies these rules, and is like, right, we're going to challenge Oxford. And they're like, we have no idea what this game is. <laughs> How well, are we meant to play you at it? Well, I mean, also, yes. Um, <laughs> this is why in the original rules, it always says that it's, if Oxford scores a point, then Cambridge wins. <laughs> Ridiculous. I mean, he, they did score something like 32 to 5. Yeah, well, uh, yeah. And I all mean... five losses were Montague. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Amazing. Yeah. Um, he was just being, you know, fair and equal. Absolutely. <laughs> Okay, so there was a problem with the National Ping Pong Association. Okay, what a sentence. (laughs) I know, I love saying sentences like that. Um, The problem was that the words ping pong Mm -hmm. are actually trademarked by Jackson's son, which is now Jacks of London. Okay. um, And they called for a meeting with the Ping Pong Association. Right. Because they felt that since it used their trademark then mm. it should only use their products right yeah now montague is a massive socialist yeah and he thinks that table tennis should be the game of the people because it's really cheap to play mm. so he doesn't want them having to buy a specific brand's yeah. ping pong stuff so what he does is immediately in front of the representatives from Jackson's son, um, he disbands the Ping Pong Association. Oh, damn. Like, just straight in front of them. Then takes everyone else into the next room. And then <laughs> and he... sets re- up the Pong Ping Association. Almost. <laughs> he sets up the Table Tennis Association. Excellent. Bam. Yeah. Uh, so that's one of the reasons why there's this distinction between Ping Pong and Table Tennis. It's branding. Right. God damn it. I know, right? <sighs> So whenever I mention ping pong from now on, I mean table tennis. Yeah. It's just that ping pong is funnier to say. It is, yes. Um, so, as I've said, Montague sees table tennis as the way for communism to spread in England, right? Yeah. Um, he also thinks that there's another way that he could spread communism, and that is through film. Okay, yeah. So he is basically absolutely desperate to get to Russia, um, because that's where the communist revolution is going yeah. on. But at the time, it was really hard to get to anywhere, even remotely associated with communism. Mm. Um, I think you had to have special visas to get there and things like that. Yeah. Uh, so what he did do when he was at university was that he went to Berlin. And Berlin was at the, that time in the 20s, 
sometimes considered to be the capital of film. Like there's a lot of oh, art okay. house film coming out of there, like um, oh, Metropolis, yes. that kind of thing. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I hadn't thought about that. Mm. Yeah. So like they're doing loads of interesting stuff. I think yeah. Hollywood's getting underway, but it's still mostly on cowboy films at this point. Yeah. Like, please don't come at me. Um, all of you Hollywood know how people <laughs> who actually know all the amazing films, but you know what I mean? They've set up that street of 12 different yeah. cowboy streets and they're yeah. doing like 10,000 cowboy films um, whereas whereas in Berlin they're doing art yes absolutely yeah so he goes to Berlin and he's like oh my goodness absolutely amazing um, I mean I agree I love Berlin yeah it is great <laughs> it is great um, so he is inspired comes back to London and founds the London Film Society along with a friend of his, Sidney Bernstein. Okay. So this was the first film society that was dedicated to showing art and independent films. God, he can't stop starting societies, can he? He loves starting societies. <laughs> he actually start, like he actually also joined some societies while he was at university, yeah. like one of which was the Cheese Eaters Society, which oh, I'm glad he did something that wasn't related to everything that he ended up doing in the rest of his life. Oh, Okay. As far as I'm aware, he did not continue to be a big cheese eater, but he did continue to be a big ping pong person and a big film person. Yeah. Okay, so um, when he turned 21, he finally got permission to go to Russia. Right. And the way he did this was by pointing out, you know, what I'm studying at Cambridge is to be a biologist. Right. I would like to go to Russia to study the Prometheus mice of the Caucasus. <laughs> what are the Prometheus mice? I will tell you. That sounds amazing. Okay, it, it, it sounds like it could be either sci-fi or fantasy. Like, that's, that's the name of a creature in the uh, Dungeons & Dragons monster manual. It's challenge rating three, the Prometheus mouse. I mean... I'm afraid they're not very cool, um, but I will tell you the story of the Prometheus mice anyways. Right. Um, so a Prometheus mouse is a sightless vole oh. endemic to the Caucasus Mountains. Oh, okay. Now, the reason why he said, let's do this, is just to get into Russia. Yeah. And like, he stopped by Moscow first, and uh, the writer that I've been reading... Um, Nicholas Griffin, I think, um, says, In reality, his first stop was Moscow, which is rather like leaving Birmingham for Manchester and stopping by London. (laughs) Oh, that's great. Which, yeah, I mean, yeah, it's so... It's so transparent. Yeah. So basically, he had a lovely time in Moscow. Mm. He got to go see Lenin's corpse, which everyone wants to do. By this mm-hmm. point, Lenin has died. Yep. Um, and also, he got he tried to get more films for the Film Society and do all kinds of like great film stuff. And he just got really enthused about communism. Was like, yes, it is 100% the way to go. Okay. And then he went to go get these voles because he had to get the voles. <laughs> Right, so... He had to prove that he was there doing some biology. Absolutely. So, he took this expedition to dig for Prometheus mice. And they found out that the mice were really quick. Like, these Ah. voles are very, very fast. Right. So, apparently, um, he bought a straw hat and tried digging for these voles for a couple of days before giving up and resorting to capitalism. Okay. Well, did he hire other people to do it? He offered to pay a ruble for every vole brought to him. Right. Uh, As a result of this, 
They were inundated by optimistic peasants <laughs> who continued to send sacks of bowls long after oh they had left t- town. <laughs> were they actually sending like the right mice or is this yeah. like... Yeah, okay. no, these were Promethean mice. Wow. Um. So, okay. He was not very good as a zoologist. Right. And this is how we know because... At first, he was like, okay, I've got sacks of voles. I'm going to put them in a cage together. Oh, no. The voles don't like each other. No. They fought viciously until only eight or nine voles remained. Jesus, that's horrible. Then, on the train back to Moscow, three of them escaped. Oh, no. Uh, Set up a little vole colony and now run the Russian railways today. (laughs) He had to get a squad of Russian soldiers to surround (laughs) the carriage and catch the runaway voles. Oh my god. And I'm sorry to say that by the time he reached London, he didn't have any voles anymore. Oh, poor things. I know. So sad. It is. Luckily, this seems to have mostly got him to give up on becoming a zoologist yeah. and just go back to ping pong and film. I mean, thank God, at least there's something he's not good at. Yeah, he's really not good <laughs> at animals. Okay, so a few months after this Moscow visit and like the Caucasus vole expedition, mm-hmm. um, he gets summoned to visit Bob Stewart. Now, Bob Stewart has got... The most American radio name I've ever heard. Yeah, he really does. Um, but actually, he... This is Bob Stewart in the morning. He was a, a socialist who worked for the Comintern, which was um, basically it was an international group that were trying to spread communism right. around the world and were taking direct orders from Moscow and had been set up by Lenin. Right. It's like Interpol, but intercommunist. Yes. Yeah. Um. So he, Bob Stewart also at one point built a radio transmitter in Wimbledon to receive instructions from Moscow. <laughs> he made them out of the bodies of Promethean mice. The Promethean mice, it turns out, survived and became <laughs> the Wombles. <gasps> oh my God, yes. Yes. <laughs> Except they're, they're sightless and the Wombles aren't. That's true. But maybe there was something about living on Wimbledon Common that just made them a lot more... <laughs> Like what grow eyes? Look, they gather loads of stuff. Maybe they made eyes. Oh god, (laughs) that's so horrific. So the Wombles have some sort of like religious ritual where like a young Womble has to go and scavenge some eyes. Yes, that's horrific. Jesus. Moving on. Okay, fine. Um, So he was summoned to visit Bob Stewart. And Stuart gave Montague a letter, which was basically a summons back to Moscow. Okay. Um, and they didn't tell him why they wanted him there. Mm. So he turns up and the people that he talks to in, I think, like the trade union offices are really cross that he took so long to get there. <laughs> well, surely, like, did he not have any difficulties getting there that time? Apparently not. Oh, weird. Which is like, how did you do this either but like did this, he, this may, becomes part of his life so maybe he know. just like went back on his old ways and he just did it and when everyone anyone said anything he's like i'm a millionaire yeah and the second <laughs> baron of, or like you know part of that family I i'm can a millionaire do I and i can buy all the voles you have <laughs> so um they told him he had to wait because um he was 
he'd arrived there just in time for the preparations for the October Revolution festivals, basically. Right. So um, at this point, he was like, well, what should I do? And they're like, wait. Oh, and if you want to be useful, you could play table tennis. <laughs> So they get like the best table tennis players in Russia at this point to go play table tennis with him for like a Amazing. week while he waits um, to have a conversation with somebody, yeah. which it turns out is about um, his film and the London film, the London Film Society. Yeah. And um, because they wanted to use it for propaganda. Ah, a good look. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> so at this point, the London Film God, I'm really bad at remembering it. Society. Thank you. The London Film Society. You said it literally less than a minute ago. <laughs> I'm hungover. Leave me alone. <laughs> so am I. <laughs> at this point, the London Film Society basically becomes propaganda for communists. Right. Um, so when I say that ping pong was always pretty communist... It was set up by a definite communist. Mm. And the purpose of it being communist only continues to sort of increase. Yeah. So after he became part of, um, like after he decided to set up the Film Society for Socialism, mm. he was basically part of the Comintern. Um, okay. So he became like closer and closer to the various heads of the USSR including Stalin, and mm. um, he was a Stalinist. And he sent voles to them on their birthdays because he was still inundated with these voles. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, now, in 1926, when he was 22 years old, so he's getting on a bit now, oh my God. Um, Montague teamed up with W.J. Pope. Mm-hmm. So W.J. Pope was a regular fellow. Um, he had previously worked for the National Union of Railwaymen, Right. And he'd learned ping pong while he was in prison because he had been a conscient- conscientious objector during World War One. Oh, damn. So this is like ultimate British socialist yeah. bloke. Um, so obviously being a millionaire, Ivan Montague's like, I really need to get somebody who can do actual socialism yeah. rather than telling the people what they want. Yeah. So he gets W.J. Pope. And... Between them, and they he learned ping pong on the inside, man. <laughs> he did. WJ Pope <laughs> learned ping pong on the inside. <laughs> I can't adapt to your outside rules of ping pong. <laughs> you don't even hit the ball with a shiv. Oh man. Okay, so one of the things they did was that they apparently set up local ping pong um, societies using the same method as trade unions use to set up that it like it's ah, is the same pattern right so yeah that's so cool it's it's all it's all very socialist yes. um so at this point his father the baron swathling comes back because yeah. montague and pope set up the european championship of mm-hmm. table tennis because obviously montague's like well i've got this set up in the uk yeah but what about the rest of Europe, including mm. all of those lovely communist countries. Ah. And at this point... I want to get my hands <laughs> on that sweet pie. And at this point, his father, who doesn't realise that table tennis is, you know, just a gateway drug to communism. <laughs> um, what a sentence. <laughs> <laughs> he was really pleased to see that his son was doing something non-political. <laughs> and he bought the championship cup which even to this day is called the Swathling Cup. Oh. I know. 
Oh, his poor dad. Well, his dad had previously tried to discourage him from going to Russia by telling him he would probably get the plague. Oh, wow. Okay. (laughs) Wow, he doesn't mince words, does he? He does not. Um, So, yeah, his dad's pretty pleased. He gets him a cup. Yeah. Um, And at this point, the International Table Tennis Federation was established. Hooray! And Ivan Montague was the president for 40 years. Damn. I know. And the whole time, he was basically... Uh, pushing it into new and more and more communist directions. <laughs> Is that why he was president for 40 years? It was partly that, and it was partly that he was the man who created it. Mm. Uh, the first meeting took place at his home, right. as in this massive yeah. mansion that his family owned. And because he had been, like, he was very successful at what he did in terms of pushing table tennis. I mm. mean, as a 22-year-old, he'd managed to get most European countries to join. Yeah. Um, he obviously later on got America and um, like Russia and China to join at the same time, which is an astonishing feat. Yeah. Um, basically, he did a really he did a bang up job on spreading table tennis. Yeah. And as we know, table tennis spreads politics. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so. Fast forwarding on to World War Two, Okay. Because obviously he was old enough to join up. He was the right sort of age. He was mm. in his 30s at this point. Yeah. Um, but he wasn't permitted to. Oh, okay. And that's because the Home Office wrote a memo yeah. saying, we have considerable information about this man dating back to 1926. Mm. And it appears most undesired that he could be allowed to serve in Her Majesty's services. They okay. were very worried that he was a spy for the Russians. Oh, of course. I I forgot that the Russians initially weren't on the Allies' side at the beginning. Oh, yeah. No, no they weren't. Yeah. And, and besides which, they were worried that even when Russia was on the Allies' side, they still didn't want Russia to know everything that was going on. Yeah, makes sense. And an example of this is Operation Mincemeat. Oh my god. Have you heard of Operation Mincemeat? The name sounds familiar, but it might just be because it sounds pretty grim. It, I, I, I don't does. think I want to be part of Operation Mincemeat. Oh no, Operation Mincemeat is absolutely wild. Right. You recall that I told you that he was one of three brothers? Mm-hmm. Well, his brother Ewan had one of the top jobs in naval intelligence by 1941. Okay. Um, he had previously been a barrister. Yeah. Like, in real life. Mm. Um, and he was part of the 20 committee. Okay. Um, the 20 committee was named after the Roman numerals XX, as in a double cross, oh because they're all into that spy shit. Yeah. Um, yeah, the person who chaired the 20 committee was at Oxford Don. I so, bet he was so happy when he came up with that. Yeah, he really was. So the point of the 20 committee was to turn German agents mm-hmm. and also to run false information back to the German intelligence services. Okay, yeah. So this is Operation Mincemeat and this was come up with by Ewan Montagu as well as other members of the 20 committee. Right. It had originally been suggested by Ian Fleming. Oh, he's back. He's back. <laughs> Ian Fleming's everywhere. There's no yeah. way to get rid of him. Okay, so the goal was they wanted Hitler to believe that the Allied invasion of southern Italy mm-hmm. was actually aimed at Greece. 
Right. So what they did was they found a Welsh alcoholic who had died. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, already this is a great start. (laughs) Yep. They found the body of this Welsh alcoholic and then they created a false identity for it. Wow. So... He was called, like they named him, yeah. uh, William Martin of the Royal Marines. Right. They gave him underpants from a former member of Lloyd George's cabinet, <laughs> letters to a fiancé. Wow. Which Ewan Montague wrote. Yeah. And wallet litter, including receipts for an engagement ring yeah. for the fiancé, and a chiding note from his bank manager at Lloyd's. <laughs> And he was also attached by the wrist to a leather briefcase. And the briefcase is the important bit. Right. And it contained operation bulletins, photographs, and most importantly, a letter written from a British general to another. Right. And this was a really authentic sounding letter because Ewan Montague had requested it be written by an actual general. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. So it actually contains like a load of gossip and mundane stuff. Yeah. And then there's a vital slip, like something that shouldn't have been in the letter, yeah. which was that the Allied invasion fleet would be landing in northern Greece, not Italy. Right. So then they speed this ca- this cadaver across England, pack it in blocks of ice in I Portsmouth. Was say, yeah, yeah, yeah. Otherwise, it's going to be getting a bit whiffy at that point. Apparently, it, it was already starting yeah. to rot. Um, then they lowered it into a submarine that went past the Straits of Gibraltar, including past loads of na- Nazi sea mines, right? It oh, had damn. to avoid those. Yeah. And then it reached the coast of Spain. Then. When they got to Spain, he was placed into a launch and motored across the Gulf of Cadiz towards Huelva and tipped into the ocean. Wow. And basically, they just had a lot of hope that he would be <laughs> found by a fisherman. Yeah. And then get found. like, And then that information yeah. would go up through the forces to Hitler, basically. Yeah. And the incredible thing about this is that it worked. Wow. Uh, yeah, so it absolutely did work. Um, Hitler did genuinely invade, like he took all his forces from Italy mm. into Greece yeah. in completely the wrong move. Okay. But the really weird thing is that somehow Russia knew all about this. <gasps> oh, no. Right. Now, we don't know how Russia found out. Right. They knew this was going on. Yeah. And they knew that Hitler was doing the wrong thing. Right. It is possible Yeah. that there was more than one spy in mm. the Montague family and that the other one was Ivor. Ah. So, um, in the 1960s, some... Russian intelligence was decoded, basically. Yeah. And it suggested that a British spy for the Russians Mm -hmm. called Intelligentsia was actually Ivan Montague. Right. So... Ooh, good code name. I know. Isn't it good? Isn't it such an Ivan Montague name as well? Like, doesn't that just point you to Ivan Montague? Yeah. Um, So this was the X group... Mm-hmm. As opposed to the XX group. Yes. <laughs> um, and they were going to do the XXX group, but they realized that that would get pretty confusing. Mm. And we know that it was basically formed by Intelligentsia mm-hmm. and that 
It also recruited somebody called Nobility, who may have been JBS Haldane, who was also definitely a spy. Right. Um, and yeah, basically, between World War Two and I think like the 1960s, it seems as though he was spying for Russia, like almost definitely. Dun, dun, dun. We, we just can't be sure though. Yeah. But I think that the fact that they knew about Operation Mincemeat is kind mm. of a little. Like yeah. one could like one could imagine. Imagine you were doing Operation Mincemeat, right? Mm. That is wild. Yeah. Wouldn't you want to tell someone about that? Yeah. Probably your brother, <laughs> not realizing that he's also a spy. <laughs> Man. Anyway, uh, so so I'm going to talk a little bit to conclude about how he made the game political. Okay. So we know that he insisted on including the USSR mm-hmm. at a time when a lot of people really didn't. Right. Um, one of the more iffy things was that he was responsible for the International Table Tennis Federation being the first games federation to exclude Taiwan in order to uh, obtain China. Yeah. But again, this makes sense because he felt that yeah. China was really important and he wanted to be all about spreading communism. Yeah, makes sense. And the thing is, we know that this actually led to some really good stuff as well. Oh, yeah? With with the ping pong diplomacy. Oh, I see. Yes, yes, of course. Which yeah. couldn't have happened if he yeah. had stuck with the UN's rules on this. Yeah, makes sense. And another time he went against the UN was slightly later on in the 1950s. Right. Which I think is kind of a lovely sort of note to leave Ivan Montague on. Yeah. So in the 1950s, uh, he encouraged the International Table Tennis Federation to exclude South Africa from the game. Okay. That was because apartheid started in Ah. 1948. And this is like an amazingly prescient move on his part. Yeah. Um, At this point, like apartheid had started, but it was at that point where everyone was like, Eh, it's not so bad. Right. Like, they were not permitting mixed marriages or mixed relationships. Mm. But to be honest, neither were large parts of America. Yeah. Um, like, like yeah. <laughs> maybe not explicitly, but, you know, very much implicitly. Yeah. Yeah. They hadn't got on to the sort of massed force migration of black people into mm. separate areas yet. And they yeah. didn't, as far as I know, do that until the early... 60s or late 50s right but already Ivan Montague is like nope this is, this is go not bad. okay yeah. this is gonna go weird and slightly fascist oh well done Ivan um and so he was like nope we are dropping South Africa mm. uh, even the UN felt that this was a domestic affair that they should say nothing about until 1960 oh damn um so yeah I think on the whole in terms of communism Ivan Montague seems to be like one of the goodies. Yeah. He wanted to spread the ideas of fairness and equality. Mm-hmm. Um, he wanted a game that could be played by factory workers. Yeah. And ping pong works best in factory like conditions, which yeah. is kind of perfect. Um, and he wanted to make sure that people didn't suffer as a result of massive millionaires like himself. Yeah. And to be honest, on most of these scores, he seems to have done. An all right job. And he spread table tennis throughout the world as a result. So, you know, good on you, Ivan Montague. (laughs) Makes up for all that possible spying. 
Well, <laughs> yeah. We don't know that anyone died as a result of yeah. his spying or anything like that. It just seems like people just knew what was going on. Yeah, I mean, it sounds like Russia didn't really do anything with that information. Well, so. what, what would they do is the thing. Like, Tell Hitler? They were they were not on Hitler's side at that point. Oh, okay. So, yeah, no, well, no. Okay, fair enough. So, in the end, Montague was awarded the Lenin Peace Prize in 1959. Amazing. Um, this is given to the Soviet by the Soviet government to a number of recipients whose work furthers the cause of socialism outside of the USSR. Mm. Um, and I think somewhat fittingly, he died in 1984. Oh, wow. <laughs> oh, dear. Well, yeah, right. Fitting, yes. Fitting. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you to, for listening to That Time When... You can follow us on Twitter at that time when four, and if you give us a little shout out on there, we can give you a shout out on the episode. Uh, if you have a suggestion for any episodes, you can email them to us at ttwpod at gmail.com. Thank you, as always, to Kevin McLeod for our theme song, Anachronist, as well as any other music that we've used in this podcast. And thank you for listening. Now go out, invest in eels, and spread communism through ping pong. Goodbye.